This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control podcast episode number 30. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, thanks for being here again today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great show today. This is the the podcast that's all things digital and business transformation, uh, including strategy, change, technology, all that good stuff. And today's episode is no different. Uh, I've got a great show planned for you today. We're going to start off the show by talking about uh, some recent developments in the ERP software industry with uh, Odoo, which is an open source software provider receiving a bunch of private equity investment. So we're going to talk about that sort of headline story here in just a moment. And then later in the show, we are going to have uh, Wayne Cavanaugh, who's the CEO of a company called Ninja Nation, which is a consumer service type of organization. We'll, we'll do more of a proper introduction later, but we're going to have him on the show to talk about a couple things. Uh, not only is he going to be on talking about growing and scaling a small and mid-sized business from the perspective of a CEO and founder, but he's also a former private equity guy. So we ask a lot of questions or we're going to ask a lot of questions about um, some of the similarities that he sees as an entrepreneur growing and scaling a company and what he would look for and how he would help scale companies as a private equity investor. So it's going to be a really good conversation, especially if you're in a high growth industry or environment where you're looking to scale your business. We're going to come at it from all angles, not just technology, but also looking at business and strategy and operations and, and how to scale your organization for growth. So We'll bring Wayne on the show a little bit later. And then, of course, uh, after that interview, Kyler and I will dive into some of the some of the threads or themes from that interview and unpack those a little bit more uh, for the audience here today. But before we get to all that, before we bring Wayne on the show, uh, tell us a bit about this uh, this story with Odoo that we, we came across recently, Kyler. Yeah, definitely. So Summit Partners um, has invested... Uh, 250 million into Odoo, which is an open source business management system, which you mentioned. Um, and its value right now as a company is just over $2 billion. So the reason this is, is so interesting and kind of goes with the theme of our entrepreneurial episode today is because it started as a startup and is still ran by the founder and CEO actually out of Belgium, which isn't really known um, for tech startups. So it's kind of created this really interesting new model that um, monetizes the open source opportunity or uh, offering free products in the ERP space and then um, for paid subscriptions. Um, So I think that this is just such an interesting development because of the overall open source um, uh, infrastructure. So I think that's a good place to kind of start in in, um, asking you, Eric, maybe you can help us understand what is an open source system and how is it different from quote unquote, a traditional 
ERP system? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and first of all, I'll say that this is a really interesting conversation, not only for the reasons you just mentioned, which is that it's an entrepreneur, it's a high growth situation, private equity involvement, and uh, talk, we're talking about scale uh, throughout this episode, but also because uh, Odoo is uh, a recent entrant into our top 10 rankings, our annual uh, top 10 ERP systems. It, it cracked the top 10 this year for the first time. It was in our top 10 in the past for small businesses, but never our, our full-blown general ranking. So it's, it's very timely in that regard. And by the way, if you're interested in that, that's a, a white paper you can download. We have links uh, below in, in the description for this podcast uh, to download our annual transformation report and, and our top 10 rankings. But um, but to answer your question, uh, what exactly open source is and how it's different, uh, open source has been around for a long time. It just hasn't really gained traction until you know, I'd say the last three or five years, it's, 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 and it's continuing to gain traction. Um, I view open source as sort of the the antidote to uh, the the super uh, structured or rigid uh, proprietary ERP systems that allow you to configure it, but they don't let you do a lot more with it unless you hire a bunch of expensive consultants to come in and do it for you using their proprietary, you know, uh, tool set and their proprietary knowledge of the software. Open source, on the other hand, is meant to be uh, flexible. It's it's sort of the opposite extreme where it's you, you you own the source code. You can do whatever you want to the the source code. Customization isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just still doesn't mean you should go overboard with it because you you have a tendency to want to break things when you when you start customizing too much. But if you you know have some a fair amount of technical proficiency and you're looking for um, you know, something that's really flexible that you can maintain yourself and really mold to fit what you want versus just settling for what a, a normal off-the-shelf system can handle. You know, Odoo or, or ERP Next is another example of an open source system that's, that's fairly popular. Those are the two leading examples of open source uh, systems. And the other thing I'll mention too is that Odoo in particular is a very, uh, it's a very modular system. So a lot of smaller companies will start off with just like the CRM module or just the financial module. And then you sort of bolt on other other modules. And in theory, all ERP systems are built that way. But Odoo is particularly particularly modular in that way and that you don't have to implement everything to get it to work. Like SAP, for example, you sort of have to implement most of the solution just to get it to work. You can't just turn off certain parts of it because it's all so interrelated. Um, so Odoo can be you know a good option for smaller companies that are growing and scaling because you can, you can grow into it. But... Um, if you would ask me about open source 10 years ago, um, and there's documented, I'm sure there's still documented evidence of this out there on the internet. I was not a fan of open source back, you know, 10 years ago, just because it was such an emerging, you know, immature technology, but now, you know, do, and now ERP next have come, come a long way and, uh, and, uh, have, have, uh, made it more, a lot more viable. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, we'll try not to have our audience surface any of those those videos, whatever was on the internet 10 years ago should just be deleted in my, my eye at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what kind of companies are good for an open source or a system like Odoo? Is there a specific industry or um, what kind, do they tailor to any sort of niche market? Um, yeah, there's a lot of markets that they they appeal to. We've seen it more in in uh, manufacturing and distribution types of organizations. But to be fair, that's 
that's a that's a biased sample because of more you know a lot of our clients are manufacturing distribution companies so you know it could just be because that's our client base and so we're seeing it more there um, we don't see it as a viable option as much with like a big company like a fortune 500 a fortune 500 fortune 1000 type of company that's you know they're more likely to want to go with a with an intentionally more standardized or rigid sort of a system because they're trying to drive more efficiency and sort of operational maturity out of their operations, whereas a small or high growth company is looking for flexibility, you know, as a broad generalization. So I'd say, I don't know that there's any certain industry that, that is better or worse for uh, open source, but I would say company size is probably a, a bigger indicator. You know, if you're a small or mid-sized company, it's, it's, it could make more sense. If you're really small and you don't have an IT staff, I think it could probably, it might be overwhelming to try and manage it, especially if you start to you know, mess with the source code or go in and change it too much. Um, that might be a bit much, but um, it, it could be a good kind of opposite uh, option to something like a NetSuite, which is built for small and mid-sized companies, but it's a software as a service, uh, software as a uh, service, sort of a more of a rigid uh, ERP system. Right, definitely. Um, and then when, when a lot of times you hear Odoo kind of in... Um, in their pitches, they talk about being built for non-technical users. And that's the one thing that I don't know that I would, in my, you know, very untrained opinion, agree with. It seems like sometimes Odoo or the open source system might need a bit more of a technical support because of the modular structure and just making sure everything fits together. And I, I wondered if you could kind of weigh your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, for, first of all, I would love to, this is a topic I would love to talk about with, uh, you know, like the CEO of Adu. I, I would love to have him on the show. And I know yeah. I know he listens to and reads our stuff. So if you're listening, uh, please come on our show, just email us. And we'll, we'd love to have you on here. But because I think open source is a fascinating um, oh, sure. emerging technology. But, you know, what I'll say is you just on, you know, my experience and, and to be candid, my, my personal open source experience is much more limited than the traditional off the shelf um traditional ERP systems. But, you know, from what I've seen and the way I've seen Odoo evolve and other open source systems evolve over, over time in recent years is that, yes, you, you can do some stuff with uh, just more as a business user, not as a technology uh, expert. But if you want to get the full benefit of that open source aspect of being able to integrate and change the software, integrate to other systems, tie together multiple modules, there's just a certain amount of complexity and sophistication you're going to have to have as an organization. And I know that's the way they market themselves. And it is a very, I, I would say about Odoo, it's got a clean interface. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's user-friendly, I would say, relatively speaking to other systems out there. But the back end of it, I think that's where companies can get overwhelmed with the the technical, the hidden technical complexities of, of tying it all together and, and making it do what you what you want it to do. And you also have to look at too, you know, whereas you look at like an SAP or an Oracle or a Microsoft, you've got, you know, thousands and thousands of resources out there throughout the world, tens of thousands of resources in most cases that support that product. They know that product inside and out. Um, Odoo doesn't have quite that level of ecosystem support yet. Maybe someday they will, but right now they don't. So yeah. you combine those two things. Yeah, that's a really really interesting point. Yeah, definitely. Do they have any sort of resellers or system integrators that specialize in Odoo? Yeah. Yeah, they do. There's there's VARs out there that specialize in Odoo. There's also VARs that specialize in ERP Next. In fact, um, I just got an email the other day from 
one of the executives at ERP Next who took uh, who took issue with something I said in one of my reviews about ERP Next. And of course, you know, vendors a lot of times don't like what I say because I I, I yeah. mentioned the good, the bad, the ugly yeah. about systems. And, uh, sure, sure. That never happens to you. Getting those angry vendor emails, <laughs> right? They, why? Why did I not give a perfect glowing review for the, for their product, uh, which, which I never do. Yeah. By the way, I don't do that for anyone. Yeah. Um, but so, I, so I think um, now I forgot your question. What was your question again? I got totally off. Track. Oh, I was talking about the support structure because oh. I think that that's a really Im- important thing for um, folks and companies to consider when when thinking about an open source system. And so I, I had never heard of one, but it sounds like there is some um, that do specialize in open source. So there are, are people out there or partners that you could look to. Yep. Yeah, there are. And, uh, you know, in theory, the whole idea behind open source is that you should be able to, you know, you should be able to take your IT person that maybe isn't necessarily an expert in open source or in Odoo or your PNX, but, but that could learn it and quickly apply those techn- technical skills to be able to change or tweak the software wherever you need to. Um, but, you know, to the extent you need uh, outside resources, yeah, Odoo doesn't have that, you know, quite the breadth of, uh, that a lot of vendors do already. And and I, I imagine that'll change in five or 10 years or whatever. It might be a moot point, but right now, you know, that's something sure. to consider for sure. Sure. So what are some other considerations that if I'm an organization, small to mid-size, thinking that this might be a really great flexible option, what are some of the main considerations that organizations should just be aware of? when thinking about an open source system like Odoo? Yeah. So one thing I'd say that uh, I also say this in past episodes and other videos we put out on YouTube, but I've mentioned this about um, Microsoft Dynamics in particular, not Microsoft Dynamics to be clear is not an open source system, but it's a relatively more flexible system than say an SAPS for HANA uh, or an Oracle NetSuite. Um, You know, generally Dynamics is a more flexible version in in the, you know, Odoo is an even more extreme example of, of flexibility. And it, it sounds good in theory, but there is there is a definite dark side to that flexibility in that, you know, a lot of times the value that people and organizations want to get out of their enterprise technology is to drive efficiency, to drive a standard operating model across your organization, to, you know, get everyone operating the same way. And just because you can be flexible with your technology doesn't necessarily mean you should. I mean, you you could be you could be using flexibility as an excuse to not make the changes you might need to make, or that maybe you could be making to be more efficient or more effective as an organization. So, I think it's it's a matter of just really understanding where you want to be on that pendulum or on that continuum of flexibility versus you know rigid standardization. Most companies are somewhere in the middle, but you want to figure out where on that continu- continuum you want to be. And if you go with an Odoo or an open source, you just want to be aware that you can create a lot of problems by being that flexible. You can, you know, you can try and get the software to do things it wasn't built to do. And it, it just can create complications during implementation. And it can actually mask some of the uh, change resistance or change management issues that, that an organization might be facing. Right. And that, that was my um, next question. So excellent segue there is how how does an open source system affect your change plan? Obviously, you want to be cognizant of that, but it seems like it might be a bit harder to predict predict like how roles will change with that um, that heightened level of flexibility. Yeah, you have a it's it's difficult because you have an automatic uh, eject button, if you will, you know, from making a change. So 
like with a, you take it like an S4 HANA, for example, whether you like it or not, S4 HANA works a certain way. And yes, you, it has some flexibility. I, I don't want to make it sound like it, there's only one way it works, but you're sort of limited by how much you can change the software. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to argue whether that's good or bad necessarily, but there's something to be said for the fact that you're sort of forcing the organization to fit into the software, which is painful in its own way. That creates a whole host of other issues, but um, it does create that, that you don't have a choice. I mean, you have to change and you have to become um, more like the software versus the way you are today. With something like an, an Odoo uh, or an open source system, you have a really good excuse not to change. You can say, well, we can just modify the source code to do the way thing, the, the way we've always done things. And that's not necessarily the right answer. It might be in some cases, but other cases it could just be hiding, you know, or a refusal to change or a missed opportunity to improve your business uh, in a meaningful way. So I think that's probably the biggest one is just understanding and recognizing the dark side of flexibility. And then the other thing we already mentioned, which is that, that technical upkeep and just understanding the architecture and the, uh, the, the back end and what it's going to take to maintain that if you, if you do end up making changes to the software going forward. Yeah, definitely. I think that that piece in, in just understanding what that looks like um, via any sort of support system is so important, whether it's an independent consultant in these situations so that you really are optimizing the technology that you're implementing. Um, what I think is really interesting about Odoo is um, about 90% of Odoo's customer base takes the free tier. So their free tier of technology modules and only 10% takes the paid or the proprietary tier. Um, they have about 7 million users. So that still is a strong profit margin. Um, but I, I'm wondering, I don't know that I've ever heard of an ERP system operating that way, offering complementary functions and using sort of that upgrade type subscription model. Um, and I wondered if, if you could kind of um, take us through what that looks like as far as as budgeting um, around utilizing systems that might be structured like that. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's sort of that, that freemium model that a lot of consumer technologies do where you get a free trial or you get the, the cheap free version, but if you want certain functionality, you, you have to pay for it. And it's sort of a way just to ease you into the platform. And then eventually the hope is it, you know, a subset of people will pay to use the more premium features. And that's a lot like, um, what, what open source or what, what um, Odoo's pricing model is doing is it's trying to get you on the platform, get you comfortable with it, get your hands dirty using the product, and then eventually, you know, upselling you to the, to the paid version. It is a good way to try it and learn it and see if it, if, if it could be a good fit for your organization. Um, I will say though, that it's a lot of effort. I mean, to, it's one thing to have a developer or one of your people just go in and mess around with it and see how it works. That's a lot of effort to go set it up and, to, you know, really try it out. Um, but you know, if you're going to try it on a broader scale, that's even more effort. You know, if you're going to get the organization to try and learn it, and then what if you find out you don't like it or you don't, you don't get the capabilities you want and you don't want to pay for it. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns. So yeah, I think you just have to be careful. You're not just haphazardly heading down this path without having a pretty clear confidence that, yeah, this is probably the right solution for us. So let's test it out with a pilot or whatever on the free version. And then we can kind of expand it from there. Um, I wouldn't recommend that if you're just thinking about it, you just go try it and start getting people to use it because then you're, you know, it may or may not be a good fit. And if you if it's not a good fit, it's going to be hard to go change back to something else or to go back to your old way of doing things if that's the way you decide to go. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So speaking of pricing structure, how does an open source system like Odoo kind of compare um, from an overall investment standpoint to other ERP systems for small to mid-sized businesses? Yeah, so they're, you know, the open source sales message is a lot like what other ERP vendors will tell you, like what cloud providers will tell you, for example, that their product is cheaper, it's faster to implement, uh, it's easier. They're going to tell you all that same stuff that other vendors would say. So they're going to say, because we have this free model and the pricing for licenses or subscriptions is lower, which is true. But when you look at the grand scheme of things of what it really costs to deploy an enterprise-wide technology, it's usually not the technology itself that's the biggest uh, you know, price tag line item. Usually it's, uh, you know, all the process improvement, the time it takes to do that, the change management, the data migration, the integration of other systems, the architecture, all that other stuff ends up, you know, you're not really changing that uh, cost profile overall. But on the direct software side, yes, you might be getting a, a slightly better deal. Um, but I will say, too, that, you know, with we always tell clients that if you see a big delta between two vendors, in terms of their costs that they're asking on their, their subscription and their licenses, then chances are you could probably negotiate away most of that difference, if not all of it. Uh, because, you know, vendors have a high profit margin to begin with and they have a lot of a lot of room to move. So I wouldn't put too much stock in that, to be honest. I, you know, other than the free version, you're not going to get, you're not going to get SAP or Oracle or any of those guys to give you any meaningful free access to their software. So short of a free model, if you're paying for it, chances are you can probably negotiate something similar with other vendors out there. That's a broad generalization, of course, but I wouldn't um, let that rule out other options if, you, if there are other options that are non-open source that might be better fits for you. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely good good information to know. So as we move into kind of this disruptor phase that Odoo's bringing as far as open source, and obviously it's attractive to um, PE different uh, clients and um firms is this is open source the the next step for ERP is that where a lot of the companies will go if they want to be more innovative or um, do you think they kind of just have the ownership of, of this specific market I think it's just another uh, innovative option in the market I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think everyone's going to go that direction um, in fact, I don't know. This is just speculation. I, I'm not a software vendor, so I, I can't speak for them. But if I were a software vendor like an SAP or an Oracle, I wouldn't want this this movement to catch too much traction because that it disrupts my model. So I'm probably going to work pretty hard to you know provide a counterpoint or a, an option that's very different from that, but you know adds some sort of meaningful value that people are willing to pay for. So um, I just think it's it's kind of like. Um, you know, the, the best of breed option, you know, you've got constant, um, innovation within CRM systems and human capital systems and financials and ERP. There's all these different options out there. Open source is just one other option. You have clouds an option on premises an option. You have all these different models. I, I don't know that I would see, you know, like right now, most vendors are moving toward cloud. Um, I don't know if everyone, if you're going to see a similar movement in several years or decades where everyone's sort of moving to this open source, um, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you, but I, I don't see that happening, but you know, I've been wrong before. It could, it could happen. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems as though at least Odoo has a bright future and, you know, big congratulations for capturing this types of funding and 
And if Fabian, their CEO, wants to, you know, come in and teach us more about open source, we'd love to hear it. But speaking of CEOs, um, it's a, you know, a talk of the CEOs today. You spoke to Wayne, another CEO, um, for our um, conversation today, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Wayne's a, a really interesting guy, uh, entrepreneur at heart, and he has uh, quite a background as a private equity uh, type person that's done a lot of investments in high growth companies. And uh, he has his own company now called Ninja Nation. We're going to talk a little bit about what Ninja Nation does, but it's a high growth company that's uh, growing very quickly through a franchise model, which I always find that fascinating because I feel like that's quarter the sort of the utopia of entrepreneurship is creating a business model that spreads like wildfire through uh, franchising. Uh, it's, it's such a great way to grow a company. And it's also a good way to learn. You can always learn from franchisers, I believe, in, in terms of how to scale a company because they've that's what they do. They, they have to master that art of scaling quickly and opening up new locations quickly. So that's really why I wanted to have him on the show. And he's a close personal friend of ours too. He's a, he's a family friend. Our kids go to the same school. We live you know, relatively close to one another. We work out together occasionally, so we, we have the uh, same trainer. So there's a lot of personal connections as well. But uh, in addition to that, obviously, the, the, the business side is what we want to cover uh, here in a moment. So we're going to have Wayne Cavanaugh, who's the CEO and founder of Ninja Nation. He's going to be on here after we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. You can find us with new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the audio podcast platforms. And uh, this week, we're excited to have on the show uh, Wayne Cavanaugh, who's the CEO and founder of a company called Ninja Nation. We, we want to talk about scaling companies uh, in this in this discussion, not only in the context of him being an entrepreneur of a franchiser that's growing through franchising, but also as a previous uh, private equity kind of guy that has worked with a lot of mid-size, high-growth organizations and investing in those organizations to fuel their growth. So really want to focus on scale. What does it take to scale operationally from a people perspective and also from a technology perspective? So all that being said, Wayne, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, Eric. Happy to be here. All right, cool. So uh, Wayne, you and I are, are uh, first of all, we'll just get it out on the table. We're, we're family friends. We're, we're close friends. Our families are friends. And uh, we've known each other on a personal level for some time now. But it turns out you have a very interesting background that uh, is, in my opinion, very related to what I do and complementary to what I do. So maybe talk a little bit about um, just your background and what you do here at Ninja Nation and maybe a little bit about your past uh, upbringing as well. Yeah, happy to do it. And thanks for having me on, Eric. I'm really excited to do this. So this is a, a blast for me. I could talk about Ninja Nation uh, for hours on end, so I'll try to keep the comments uh, short and sweet. But just from a background perspective, 
Uh, grew up in Chicago, started my career in Chicago in investment banking uh, in Chicago and London. Uh, spent a lot of my time in mergers and acquisitions, capital raises, IPOs, secondary offerings, um, great experience in investment banking. Moved into private equity for about 10 years with a stop at business school, kind of halfway through there. And uh, a lot of that time was spent on high growth health and wellness companies. So if you think about physical therapy, dialysis companies in particular, uh, smaller companies that had created a really cool patient experience, um, but their growth was all around multi-site scale. So they went from having five, six, seven, eight locations uh, to one of those companies now has about a thousand locations across the country. Uh, so really enjoyed doing that. Um, moved out of private equity to go into operations. I really enjoyed the operations side of growing the companies and not as much the capital side um, and moved into helping companies scale and grow from a, an executive level perspective and did that for a number of years until in 2017, I founded my own company, which is Ninja Nation. And today Ninja Nation is the leading provider of marquee ninja sport experiences. Um, if you're familiar with American Ninja Warrior, uh, the television show uh, that really kicked off and started this amazing sport of ninja. Uh, so Ninja Nation caters to primarily youth and families um, looking for an amazing uh, jungle gym on steroids, on steroids is what we call it. Um, it's a ANW like experience uh, in terms of um, maybe some of the obstacles you would see on the television show that they've made famous. Uh, but we provide it uh, in about 15,000 square feet, just beautifully appointed, awesome, safe facilities. And in those facilities, we provide everything from a development program, so classes and competitions, to birthday parties. We, we claim they're the best birthday parties on the planet. Um, we host field trips. We hold uh, adult um, uh, team building uh, functions in our facilities. And every week we have about a thousand participants per location roll through our doors. So a uh, business that um, I really found it out of a passion for youth athletics and the positive experience that you can have on today's youth through a really mind blowing um, athletic experience for them where they're working out, but they're having so much fun. They don't know they're working out. Uh, so today we're at, uh, five operating locations. Uh, we started a franchising program that really re-kicked off um, about two months ago. And we've had, I think we're up to five to 600 applicants for Ninja Nation franchise locations um, across the world. We're, we're focused exclusively on the United States right now, but the plan is to move international in the next couple of years as well. Great, that's, that's awesome. So what um, what's interesting about your business with with Ninja Nation is that you know a lot of this growth that you've experienced is, was during the pandemic, you know, during a time which would seem like the worst time to be in that business. So how did you guys uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how you navigated that and what that growth trajectory looked like, you know, over the last year and a half since the pandemic? Yes, February twenty twenty, we were at peak performance. Uh, we had about fifteen. Uh, folks about to sign in our franchise process um, for new locations. And and by March 15th, we had 
turned off the lights, <laughs> locked the doors, turned off the lights and, and moved into uh, just uh, along with the rest of the world into kind of hunkering down and working through it. We spent that time, um, one, assessing what COVID impact would be for our business, for how long, uh, what services we could continue to offer. Um, and so by June 1, we were reopened and we offered up a single skill ninja camp, uh, which is really kind of ninja care with a drop-off program, uh, program health screening. Uh, parents would just drop off outside. Kids would come in, uh, spend the day at Ninja Nation. We had a really cool camp programming that we had that existed. We modified it for this care program. And within two weeks, we had sold out the entire summer. So the one hmm. aspect of COVID at that time, and I think it continues to be the case, is it didn't impact kids from a health perspective nearly as much. So whether it they're asymptomatic or our health screening really worked, um, we had 13 to 1400 kids come through in a two month period last summer and not a single reported case of COVID. Um, wow. So that was really well done. Our, our team executed it really well. And um, it was something that the communities really needed at, at that time. And then since then, uh, we've seen things explode. So our class program and participation is through the roof. Our mobile offering, which is events uh, that we do at churches, schools, uh, in the communities have, have come back largely. Now we'll, we'll figure out what this next search does to all that. But um, as you know, uh, especially in your world, it's all about pivoting. And so the team focuses on pivoting. It's not, you can't put your head in the sand. Right. You got to just get out there, roll up your sleeves and figure it out. Yeah. 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 And that's, it's a, a interesting story because uh, I remember you and I talking just on a personal basis around that time. And um, it, it was a scary time for all of us, you know, especially those, those of us that own businesses and yours in particular seemed like, you know, could be at risk, but you guys found a way to, to navigate that sort of pivot, change the business model and, uh, is that when you started getting into more, you started pushing the to the franchising or the franchising really took off was post COVID or had you already been doing that? Yeah. Po so we had started it maybe two months pre COVID. So beginning of 2020 and um, we, we quickly put it by the wayside. I mean, our focus was taking care of our employees, um, helping our, our team members uh, through this crazy COVID world, um, you know, focus on the, the, participants and consumers we had at the time, what services we could offer. And, um, you know, for, for us, franchising is building partnerships, right? It's, it's finding terrific people that are passionate about what we, what we do. We want to be able to showcase that, have operations that make sense, um, prove to ourselves that our team could pivot the way we needed to pivot. And then, um, bring in those partners at that time when our heads were clear, because it's a two-way street and it's a it's a permanent relationship, and so we need to have clear heads, kind of clear operational, you know, pathway through COVID, and then once we got that done, we turned the the franchise engine back on. Nice. So, in addition to uh, COVID, what other challenges have you faced, or what have some of the biggest challenges been that you faced while while scaling up and growing on Ninja Nation? You know, we've been very fortunate in a number of areas. Um, you know, the market level of interest in what we do 
um, was probably the biggest challenge early on. You know, when when I remember walking into uh, the first set of meetings with landlords uh, that were renting out spaces, and I said, I want to do this ninja sport concept and build it. And they, you, know, you almost get laughed out of the room. And so uh, the same thing with parents, right? So the, the great part about the systems we created at Ninja Nation, the service offerings we have really introduce parents and kids through birthday parties. So if you think about Colton having a birthday party, they invite 14 friends that may have never heard of the sport of Ninja. Um, they have a mind blowing experience. It's super fun. They have a great birthday party. But then they find out, hey, you do classes and you do competitions and there's a community around this and there's ninja moms and ninja dads and people are really into this and you can make this your sport. And so I would say that we, we call it driving access to the sport and awareness of the sport. And being a leader in that has, has been, a, been a blast because you see a lot of eye-opening experiences, you see kids' lives being changed, their confidence grow, um, moms and dads happy because they, their kids are getting a great workout, they're away from TV screens, they're away from their iPhones, um, and the kids don't realize they're getting a workout, they're just having fun. Um, so I think generating an understanding that we're not, there's nothing wrong with trampoline parks, a great place to go have fun, but people mentally want to categorize you into some category. Are you a gymnastics facility? Are you a trampoline park? Right. One is entertainment. Gymnastics is a sport. So we we created this new segment we called Sporttainment. And it's this combination of sport and entertainment. We're doing a development program alongside doing birthday parties. We're doing field trips alongside doing our Ninja Nation basics class. We'll have competitions. Uh, at the same time, you can come have a end of season celebratory party for your soccer team. All right, that's very cool. Okay, we're here talking to Wayne Cavanaugh about scaling and growth for small and mid-sized organizations. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have more questions for Wayne. We'll be right back on more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Wayne Cavanaugh having a great conversation about scaling small and mid-sized organizations from a people process and technology perspective. Let's jump right back into the conversation. When you think about the scaling challenges you, you face now with, with a small business that's growing quickly, how does that compare or, or you know, sort of what experience do you bring to the table from your past experience with a PE company? You talked about some of the, some of the uh, organizations you were involved with in the health industry and others, but what, you know, what are some of the lessons from maybe that past life of yours as far as, uh, 
you know, some of the biggest challenges you've seen, just maybe organizations in general across the board yeah. that you've worked with, or just some of those biggest challenges you've seen? Yeah, the, the benefit of having the experience that I've had when you, in private equity, you buy these companies and your job is to help them grow. And helping companies grow can mean a lot of different things. We, I always think about it as scaling the business and how do you replicate that secret sauce that has made the existing components of the business successful, um, given that you've got constraints. There's always constraints around time, people, um, cash, capital, um, you know, kind of any other unique resources there may be for that particular business. And when you buy them, it, it, you grow them and then you ultimately exit them and you, you sell them. And hopefully you've done your job of creating not only a, a scaled business from where you start, but you've created a scalable engine that has this perpetual motion behind it that can keep going well beyond your period of ownership. So I always call it writing the playbook of when you buy a company today, you've got to think five years ahead as to what that perpetual energy machine looks like from scalability five years before you get to that point. Because without that roadmap and without that kind of, it's almost like a, how do I want to present the business? I pretend I'm in a room with some people and they say, here's what we've done. Here's why it's not just a one trick pony, why I can keep doing that. So that was my job for the bulk of my early career. When I created Ninja Nation, you know, you, those habits that you develop professionally, you apply in all sorts of different settings. I applied it in an engination setting. So it was the same kind of thing. Not that I'm looking to sell an engination, but when I look at that perpetual energy machine, what do I need to put in place today to actually have that happen and not be a one trick pony, meaning for us, a single facility. I don't want to be a single, single facility operator. I want to prove that I can have this scalable um, component to our business. That meant uh, investing ahead of the curve. And that's one of my uh, founding investor partners uh, talked about quite a bit. When you invest ahead of the curve, systems in particular are, are really where you do that. What does that mean? For us, systems were um, how the consumer interacts with our business. Right. So we went out and we got the same system platform that Orange Theory Fitness uses. They use it for thousands of locations, hundreds or thousands of locations. And we were looking at using it for a single one. Why did we do that? We needed to be able to kind of have that vision of scale. Um, we use Ring Central for our platforms. We use a third party um, software platform for payroll. So uh, telephony, um, billing, IT, and then our core consumer interaction platform from booking classes, birthday parties, all fully integrated system um, for purposes of scale. And scale has a, a, another component behind it, more than just replicability, which is information, right? So we use it for data purposes. All of our waivers are digital. Why is that? Because we use that for marketing information. Moms and dads put in their email addresses and we can remarket 
future services to them, reminders about their child's birthday party come, or birthday coming up so we can book birthday parties. Um, we can keep track of how many heroes we've created, right? So our number one metric we track are the, the uh, number of participants, unique participants we've had come through our doors, which we've almost hit 200,000 in the last three years. Um, and so we, we do all that so that we've got data and we can turn the data into information and we can use it to track the performance of the business, um, our promotional activities, what kind of results we get from that. Uh, we use it for remarketing purposes, consumer engagement. Um, all those things are things that businesses of our size would never have. I mean, emerging brands like ours, we're so far ahead from a technology perspective um, that allows us to really scale in a really positive way and then hand that to our franchisees. They're on the same platforms that we're on, um, allows them to run their business effectively, highly efficiently. Um, and it's a really important component of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I don't know if you, you and I, I don't think we've talked about this before, but have you ever read that book, uh, E-Myth Remastered? I haven't. I so it's a, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, it's, it's a book about um, growing a business and how you need the way to scale is to think about your business like a franchise. And so, you know, it sounds like that's sort of what you did from day one is even before you were actually franchising, you're thinking about how do I get systems and repeatable processes in place to where you could bring in, you know, three, five, 10, 20, however many franchises and you've got a playbook, you've got a system to do it. So it, it sounds like a basic no brainer, but I think a lot of, you know, a lot of organizations forget that, you know, they, they think, you know, they rely on travel knowledge. They've got heroics, like individual heroics that are driving the business and that's not scalable. You've got, um, processes that are just sort of intuitively known by people, but they're not documented. So it's all the stuff that sort of runs counter to what you're saying. And what I love about your business model is you're, you're totally dependent on being able to scale. I mean, you can't franchise unless you have repeatable processes and systems and, and that sort of thing. So it's yeah. pretty interesting. I think a lot of what you just said applies. You don't need to be a franchiser to do that sort of thing or to benefit from that sort of thinking. That, that that's And I have listened to the audio book version of that book. Um, and I think in that particular example that they had, the uh, gentleman was running his business and he was literally holding everything together. I mean, he was, he was doing everything right. And to your point, you've got to be able to extract that stuff from your brain, um, somehow document it and then empower others to go do it. And, but you've got to have the ability to trust, but verify. And that's exactly how I built this business. Um, so that I could have phenomenal people better, better than me at running the front desk and engineering, but have the systems behind it all. So I had visibility into um, how they were performing, what unique needs they may have that I don't recognize that I could resources, I could get them uh, so that they can perform in their roles better. Um, and, and so from day one, I built it so that I could live a franchisee's life of not having to be in the facility every single day, uh, but have enough visibility into this, you know, really cool operation um, from a, th via a, a systems platform, a, a technology and information platform. Yeah, yeah. So you talk about the systems and you, those are good examples of the billing and the 
the customer engagement, um, document management uh, for waivers and things like that. You talked about some of the specific technologies or types of technologies that are critical to you being able to, to scale and add new locations. What about from a pure uh, process improvement or process optimization perspective? Um, and I guess maybe I'll ask it from two different angles. One is for Ninja, for Ninja Nation in particular, you know, how have you viewed that whole or, or how have you addressed that whole concept of, of process optimization and, and continuous improvement? And then I'll also ask you, you know, as it relates to private equity and maybe some of the larger firms you've worked with over the years, how, you know, if it's, if it's different, but yeah. starting with Ninja Nation, how, how do you, how do you treat business processes? How do you manage that longer? So being so consumer facing, uh, we trust consumer opinion to drive our optimization. There are some uh, unique challenges to consumer uh, opinions in, in our particular business. Um, we take we, a lot of that data that we extract and contact information we extract, and we do two things from process improvement. We do real-time text surveys uh, 24 hours after your visit to Ninja Nation. So your mom or dad will get a text. How was your visit to Ninja Nation? It's a rating system. We get immediate feedback. And then we have the ability to follow up and ask for more details if there was a, a challenged experience at Ninja Nation. Secondly, we do very formal um, surveys. And so we probably have done 70 plus consumer surveys uh, using our database. On particular topics, whether it's class scheduling, programming, uh, competitions, birthday party experience, um, because we don't we view process improvement as a as a daily thing, right? We're mm. we're driven by consumers, um, and we try to incorporate that feedback on a real time basis. We use information from our systems to tell us how we're performing in certain categories whether that's class attendance, type of class attendance. Um, we have an introductory class. There's certain metrics we track every single week to understand how the sales of our particular services are um, performing and correlated to the survey feedback we're getting. And so we'll continually uh, try out and test and, and pilot new service offerings based on what we're hearing from our consumers. The only danger we have is we, people that are very passionate about Ninja Nation. They're Ninja moms and dads, and they're there all the time. We're trying to help their children become the best athlete they can be. And at the same time, we're bringing in new athletes, which means challenges uh, and the level of difficulty of our obstacles is always something that we're trying to balance because you've got kids that very quickly accelerate in their fitness path and then others that are just coming in. So we've got a you know, continually protect the experience, uh, making it a, a great experience for beginners as well as, you know, advanced kids at the same time. And then we have a, a, a very empowered leadership team. Uh, we have a value system and we have a mission, right? Our mission is to create a million heroes. Our value system are, is, is based on our three E's, engagement, encouragement, and energy. We teach our franchisees the same kind of value system. And the reason that's important is as long as you're doing and taking actions that fall into the buckets of 
enhancing engagement, driving energy, uh, focusing on encouragement, any, any one of those things, when you're feeding into it from a process imp improvement perspective, you have full permission to go do it. Um, so there's little limitations we put on driving outstanding consumer experiences as long as you're following that value system. Hmm. That's super interesting. And, and you're, you're touching on a, what I'd consider sort of the secret sauce of scalability, which is creating that, that culture and the values and the, just the overall environment, you know, that's, you, you can't really necessarily document that as a playbook, although you kind of have with your three E's and, you know, some of the things that you, you value, but I mean, as far as the, everything from your hiring practices to the way you groom and develop people, you, you've probably systemized, systematized a lot of that, but that's sort of creating that culture that that's when you combine that with the technology and the processes, the process stuff that you talked about, that, that right there is that really powerful combination that I would imagine could fuel a lot of scalability or growth beyond what, you know, the, the average company could. It, it, it really is. Uh, it's actually the key component to our success is um, the right people doing the right job at the right time. And we focus on behavioral profiles, personality testing uh, for every new hire. They go through a personality profile. If they don't get an eight out of 10 or better on matching the desired personality for that particular role, we don't hire them. So we're very um, behavioral, uh, I, I call it employee dissonance. It's a, it's a person that's in a role that they had to exhibit behaviors that are forced and it will drive them to quit or uh, be a bad apple in the bunch. And when they're doing something like, if you're introverted and you're asked to be an extrovert 90% of your job, you won't last, it won't work. You won't find satisfaction. So we try to bring people into the workplace in their natural state exhibiting those same natural personality attributes that they have. And we test for that. And then to your point about development, the biggest, um, I would say, outsized investment we made relative to the size of the company was we have an online learning platform. We white labeled a, a third party's training platform, created an engineering university. So now we're hiring in based off of personality profiles. And then we're doing explicit training on exactly what your role is. What are the three E's? How do you exhibit those in your role? What are the don'ts? How you don't exhibit that? Uh, because a lot of the folks we hire in are younger people. This may be their first job. And what we want it to be is, and we know that they will move on at some point, right? A lot of those folks will go to college, they'll go, uh, you know, go into the workplace well beyond engineering. But we want to give them a great foundational understanding of what a great work environment looks like, uh, cross-training experiences. What does it mean to be an outstanding customer service employee, right? How do you drive phenomenal uh, consumer experience? So that when they do graduate from college, ideally, just from a personal satisfaction and having an impact on folks. I want those future employers to see Ninja Nation on a resume and say, wow, you were selected by a phenomenal 
company. You were trained exceptionally well. You showed that you could be successful in that environment and um, have it be a real kind of gold star on your resume if if you worked at Engination. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's a great it's a great way to look at it. I mean, everything from the learning platform to the you know the way you view new hires and the way you develop them and treat them. I mean, I think that's a it, again, it's one of those things that doesn't sound like doesn't sound like rocket science. It's not rocket science, but so many organizations and leaders lose sight of that or forget to do that stuff or don't think to do that stuff as part of their their day to day jobs. And that and that's a benefit of the background that, that I have. And I'd be failing my company if I didn't put all that to use. But I'd also be lying to say I haven't made a ton of mistakes over 20 years of being involved in, you know, 15 different companies or seeing shortcomings of companies that wanted to scale, but were wondering why they struggled to do that. Um, the, you know, the components of scale, you know, applying people process technology to accomplish scale is not just a one-time uh, process. It's, it's continual. And, you know, we get caught up in financial performance, and one of those people processor technology things falls by the wayside and you're wondering why you can't scale and you almost have to go back to the drawing board, revisit those three things again. And, you know, just like that, that book that we were talking about, the goal, you know, the stopping and starting of that costs you a lot of time and energy and other resources. Whereas if you can keep it as a continual review process and part of what you do, you really minimize that feeling of catching up and all those wasted resources that, that go into that. And that, that takes having made a lot of mistakes in the past of forgetting about those things. And then just ingraining that in how your team approaches things on a routine basis so that, you know, it's, it's a highly efficient company that's able to pivot, you know, like we were talking about with COVID, you're able to pivot quickly move forward um, and not be, you know, constantly caught on your heels. Yeah. Okay. We're here talking to Wayne Cavanaugh about scaling and growth for small and mid-sized organizations. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have more questions for Wayne. We'll be right back on more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Wayne Cavanaugh having a great conversation about scaling small and mid-sized organizations from a people process and technology perspective. Let's jump right back into the conversation. So let's go with that thread for a second. I mean, if you, if you back up in your career or rewind uh, back to the earlier years of your career, 
uh, as a PE guy. Um, and, you know, now you have the luxury, I guess, of being able to take all those lessons, apply it to Ninja Nation, and you understand people process technology. So you can get it, maybe not perfect, but you can get it right, do a lot of the things that maybe you wouldn't have done 20 years ago when you first started. But if you rewind and go back, you've, you've worked with a lot of companies where you're going in, you're, you're, you're taking an equity stake or maybe a majority stake in the company. And yep, there's probably some sort of underlying value in the company, but there's also probably something wrong or holding it back. So I suspect you've probably had to do a bit of turnaround or, you know, sort of getting those people process technology components right. So from, well, first of all, is that a safe assumption? Is that true? Like, would you typically go in and find that it's a valuable company, but it's undervalued because they're not getting the secret sauce right? Or there's some that some opportunity they're missing out on? Is that typically what, what you'd invest in? Yeah, you know, it runs a gamut. And I wasn't a turnaround specialist. I became one in 2009 because of the 2008 financial crisis. So hmm. I would say uh, we very quickly had to learn how to be a turnaround specialist, um, not, not out of you know desire or purpose going into it. And I would say, um, you know, a lot of times companies can lose track of what's core to their success. And you start building layers and layers of other stuff that goes into the business that moves you farther away from having that core value proposition exposed and kind of front and center for everything that you do. So people start to move away into other areas and that creates a lot of that excess cost um, when you're trying out other things or you're trying to move into a, a new segment of the market because it looks shiny and flashy and you think you can attain growth from there. A lot of times what I found is uh, simple is better and keeping your business um, really focused on that core thing that you do uh, that creates great consumer relationship, whatever your customers are, or clients, um, just doing that over and over again and, and saying no when these distractions come in. And it's hard to do when you're private equity backed, you're meeting with the board on a quarterly basis, but your private equity relationships are daily, right? So you're talking to someone in the PE firm, maybe on a daily basis, and you feel this obligation to kind of, hey, we're creating, we're doing something new. We've got this piece going, oh, this other thing. Yeah, we're growing five to 8% in our core of what we do, but private equity guys, you want to go kill it for them. So you want to, where can we go get a thousand percent growth? And you move away from that, that, that core thing. So if there's any theme that I really embedded in what we do at Nation, it's, it's simplicity. So when you go into our arenas, we don't have fryers. We don't make food. We don't have pizza ovens. We don't have soda machines. There's two reasons behind that. One, there's no bad job in engineation, meaning someone's got a hairnet on and they're stuck behind a fryer all day at 800 degrees. But more importantly, there's everybody's consumer facing because our core is making a phenomenal experience for moms and dads and their kids. And everything that we add in, while we can make extra money with pizza ovens, right? We can make our own pizzas instead of bringing them in. Uh, we could um, have soda machines. We could have video game machines in the lobby. All those things may add a layer of 
profitability in their own right, that they're going to move us farther away from being that consumer engaged positive experience by distracting us to go do those other things. Let's just do what we do really well and not allow for distractions away from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. So is that, that whole theme of simplicity and sticking to your core, sticking to your knitting, whatever you want to call it. Is that something that you found in your PE life back in the day was something you had to sort of strip out some of the complexities or strip out some of the distractions within the investments that you, you guys would make. And that takes, that's where there's a high level of thought put into what is that core value proposition so that you can identify all these extraneous layers of other stuff that have been added in and then strip it away. So we've, we've had to do that, you know, in 2009 in particular, where you had to really dig in and kind of say, Hey, there's a smart way to go do cost reductions. And then there's the, um, shotgun approach, right? Just people need to go, these costs need to go. Um, and it positions the company poorly for the rebound or when you're coming out of that, um, because you will have hurt part of the core value proposition. So the thing that a guy named Mark King always kind of taught me is how do, how are we putting the consumer first? How are we, communicating to our teams what our value proposition is to clients and demonstrating that we really understand how we drive value in that client's life or that consumer's life and then work backwards from there and make sure that everything in the organization is aligned around that and once you start to think about things that way it seems to make your life a bit easier um and one of the things that we really focus on is communicating that to our team, to your employees. It demonstrates that you know the consumer, it demonstrates your team that um, you help them find an identity around why they exist or why they're in this role, why they're an employee with the company. And that's, um, that's a higher level of intentional thought that has to be put into that. And without that, we've found companies, I mean, I probably reviewed, I've looked at 2000 companies would be my guess during my investment making and private equity days. And you're always looking for signs that the company actually understands its key value proposition. And that's demonstrated through where they're spending money, how they're spending money, what kind of, you know, returns they are getting on the investment initiatives that they take. But, more importantly, the dialogue with the management teams, right? You, 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 that's why you have those meetings. You get to meet those folks is you really need to understand. Do they, do they really understand what purpose their business serves to the world? And are they talking in a way that shows that the partnership they want to be in with you is aligned around, you know, driving that value that makes it, uh, it sounds simple and some people don't like to sound simple. They want to make it sound more complicated than it really needs to be. But the simpler they can make it sound to me, the more intelligent they are and that they've actually understood that layers of complexity and extra activities in the business that move away from that core value proposition 
um, it, it shows this higher level of thought and a, a stronger likelihood for sustained success. Okay, we're here talking to Wayne Cavanaugh about scaling and growth for small and mid-sized organizations. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have more questions for Wayne. We'll be right back on more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Wayne Cavanaugh having a great conversation about scaling small and mid-sized organizations from a people, process, and technology perspective. Let's jump right back into the conversation. If you think about, you know, starting your private equity days over here, Ninja Nation over here, Ninja Nation, let's call that the, the model of simplicity and scalability, repeatability, all that stuff that, you know, you've been learning over the last 20 years. But over here in your private equity days, when you would get involved with one of these companies that didn't have the Ninja Nation mindset or whatever, the, you know, whatever you want to call it, what were some of the other things in addition to focus and simplicity what were some of the other challenges or pains that you saw those companies go through as they tried to get to that level of scale and growth you know i was very fortunate to be part of two companies in particular that were phenomenal um results that from scaling initiatives and the reason they were successful is the opposite of why others uh, aren't. One is investing ahead of the curve, right? So understanding where you need to be five years from now and convincing capital resources around you to make those investments. Um, two, it had a lot to do with employees, understanding your culture, um, having your own university to teach your culture to people coming in. Um, to teach the desired behaviors. Training is, is a lot more for scale, is very different than training for um, operational efficiency. Meaning, I could teach you how to work the front desk at an engineation, and you would be able to do it. You could book a birthday party, you could check people in when they come in, you can help a field trip, get all the kids lined up and going, but I'm trying to teach you the culture and the why behind why we exist, why I need you to do it with a smile, why I need you to do it in a bubbly manner. Um, that Those are the things that are key differentiators because once I help you understand why, you're able to perform better because you have purpose behind why you're doing it, but you're also able to help me improve it. Meaning, if you understand why you need to behave a certain way in these roles, 
you understand that you're trying to create some sort of experience that empowers you to think about other ways to enhance that experience in my view. And as long as you're coming to me with suggestions that fit with that, why, um, then you're able to go, uh, have a lot of autonomy, have more fun in your role and it helps the company be more successful. That is, I don't want to say stolen, but replicated from the companies that I saw do that incredibly well. And once you start putting all those things together, um, the biggest constraint almost all organizations have, um, sometimes it's systems, right? And access to information. And when you have lack of systems and information, you can't communicate results. A lot of attracting in capital, capital which, which ultimately is the governor of all growth, is not being able to demonstrate success. And the way you demonstrate success in today's world is through saying we're gonna go do something, we measured it, and we met or exceeded the initial expectations. Without proper systems to do that, for example, if we didn't have the ability to track attendance by service line and type that we have in Engination, and I'm you know, sitting here talking to franchisees about seasonal promotions or the seasonality in the business, and I don't have any data to back up what I'm talking about or information to communicate my understanding of the business and how we grow. I can't be a great partner to a franchisees. Same thing when it comes to communicating with my investors, right? We, we put together a budget or a forecast or expected set of goals. Um, and then we measure towards that. And those systems in my view are highly critical to attracting in future capital because I can demonstrate that I, I did what I said I was going to do. My team accomplished what we said we were going to accomplish. And that's why I'm such a big believer in investing ahead of the curve is those systems that we invested in will actually help me grow significantly more and in a way that I wouldn't have been able to uh, without having them. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's sort of like you need, you need to address all those areas, you know, it's a, it's a almost a recipe for scale. You know, it's not just doing any one of those things, but you, you, you miss any one of them. You're going to, you're going to miss out on that potential uh, growth, growth trajectory that, that you've seen with some of these companies. Um, and it's, it's super the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is you start with a blank sheet of paper and limited resources. And it is, I should write a book at some point about just the, you know, trying to help people with their startups. Um, there's a lot of missteps in there. You need to focus number one on making your first dollar revenue and, and revenue cures all ills. But, uh, there's strategic thought that you can put into a, a timeline of events that you want to happen that, um, and it's just to me being top three biggest investments that we made and engineering to get us where we are today. Um, and that takes, that takes guts to start putting money into mm -hmm. systems that are well beyond what you need today with a vision that those systems, are going to be highly critical, not only to 
the growth of the business, but your ability to attract in capital down the road. Yeah. Yeah. We see a lot of companies that have done the opposite. You know, a lot of our clients, for example, have done the opposite. They've grown, they've scaled, they've underinvested in technology. And there's a, there's a term that is commonly used in our space called uh, technology debt. So in other words, you're, you're behind on technology. So now you've got this debt that you've got to sort of pay off or catch mm -hmm. just, just to catch up. And it, I think a lot of companies struggle to get ahead of the curve. And then what they do is they, they try to make such a massive leap. You know, they go from technical debt to implementing a cloud based, you know, enterprise technology with artificial intelligence and all this cool stuff, mm -hmm. but it ends up being such a massive disruption because now you're trying to cram this all in into a short period of change. And uh, so it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, even as a, as a startup back when you had, you know, really no one, no employees, or you're just getting started, you were still investing, you know, five years out. And a lot of companies don't think that way. They wait until the system's about to break or it already did break. And now I've got to replace it and get caught up with, you know, right. the 2020s where we're at today. Right. So it's, uh, it's a, and that's, that's the communication battle. You're sitting in a board meeting, maybe you're behind on results. And then at the same time, you say, hey, I want to invest in technology that's five years ahead um, on a continual basis. It's It takes a lot of guts. Um, it, it takes a high-performing board to understand that. Um, you know, the, the, the strategy behind continually investing in people, process, and technology is a, it's easy to say, but in the face of adversity, um, those things start to very quickly go by the wayside if you're, you know, not as strong in the spine about sticking to those things and, and continually making investments in there for the future success of the company. And, and that's yeah. where companies go wrong. You know, they let one of those things go. We're gonna stop with our phenomenal HR process and we're gonna let that go by the wayside. We're going to not move uh, into the next you know, version of whatever software helps us perform better. We're not going to launch a CRM like we said we would or whatever have you. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of factors, but it takes a lot of guts to continually put your foot down and say, hey, we're going to keep making these investments for the long run. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And I guess that's, you know, maybe a good way to sort of tie this all together and, and wrap up the conversation is, you know, you're, you're hitting on a really important topic of leadership um, and having a spine and being able to uh, make those gutsy decisions or have set that gutsy vision for, you know, how things could be different from where they are today. But what advice would you give to an organization? Let's assume that most people listening to this conversation are in established businesses of some sort and they probably aren't perfect. They probably have opportunities for improvement. And if they're listening to this, they're or they follow me on social media, they're probably going through some sort of transformation of their own as a business. What what words of wisdom would you give for a company that's just trying to change and maybe correct or right size their ability to, to scale? You know, they're not a startup, they've been around for however long, maybe it's a family owned third generation business, been around for 50 years, whatever the case may be. And they're trying to figure out how do we how do we get to the next level? We're stuck. We didn't do a lot of the things that Ninja Nation did from day one. We probably should have, but it's too late now. So what do we do to fix that? I mean, what so what advice would you give as sort of the high, you know, the highest low hanging fruit for uh, for a company or a team or an individual within a team that 
wants to lead the, the charge for some sort of transformation to, to be able to scale? You know, I, I really um, was, as simple as it sounds, the understanding why, right? Um, that's Simon's book that he wrote about understanding your why. To me, it, it's of critical importance because when you're going through change, one, if you're the leader of that change, you have to understand the why. What are, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we doing it now? Why are we doing it in this particular way? Why are we doing it with this system? And then you have to live that. You have to own that, live that. Most importantly though, you have to find the right channels of communication around that, right? So whether you're communicating up to the CEO of the company, or you're communicating to your colleagues, peers, um, or people that report to you, finding a really powerful way to remind people about the why we're doing this is, is critically important. You know, change is hard. As you know, you live in a world of change and it can easily hit roadblocks and a lot of naysayers and it can fall apart. You can end up with a dead initiative. To me, the biggest reason those failures happen is somebody forgot the why or forgot to remind somebody what the why is or forgot to get into a communication cadence around the why we're doing this, what the expected end goal looks like, why this is gonna have a great impact on the organization. Once the whys stop happening, whether it's organizational alignment and support for your initiative, capital um, uh, that's flowing in to support the initiative, just emotional energy around it, it starts to dissipate. Um, and it's, it's, you can try to catch up, but just like, you know, the reason you got to that spot is you let it go on too long. If you don't do the why reminders frequently enough and communicate um, to the right people in the right ways around the whys, uh, things, things will, you know, cascade against you and um, it's hard to catch up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a good, that's a good reminder. I mean, that's a good uh, comment for anyone that's a leader in general. I mean, just to be able to state the why we're doing what we're doing, why we're, why we're all here, why are we in business? Um, and certainly when you start imposing change on people or something that could be perceived as imposing change on people, and if they don't understand it, they're probably not going to get on board and they're probably not going to help you. So, uh, you know, maybe when you hire your first employee at Ninja Nation, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, coercion coercion you could do to sort of get that one person to sort of stay in line or whatever. But once you get to 100, 1,000, 10,000 employees, they've all been around for a long time. And now all of a sudden you're trying to change things. They, right. they do need to understand the why. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, thanks for being here, Wayne. This is a really good conversation. I think, uh, you know, I like this conversation because it's relevant to companies of all sizes. You know, I think there's a, a lot of small business owners and small business teams that listen, but there's also, you know, big multinational companies that are listening to this interview that this all this is all relevant no matter what size company you are, whether you're a, an engine nation that's growing, you know, shooting up like a rocket or whether you're a big, mature, established global company that's just trying to get out of a rut or just trying to get into the 2020s or whatever the case may be that sure. a lot of these lessons apply regardless. So it's good stuff. Absolutely. Happy to do it, bud. Thanks for having me on. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. How do people uh, find more about Ninja Nation? Uh, what's the website? Or are you where do we find you on social media? Yeah, go to go to ninjanation.com. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook uh, under Ninja Nation, uh, or come into one of our facilities. Come check it out and uh, come come get your ninja on. All right. Thanks a lot, Wayne. Thanks for being here. Really enjoy having you on the show. It's fascinating stuff and in quite a different angle than what we've seen with other guests and other discussions we've had on the show. So really appreciate having you here today. In fact, it was so interesting that uh, Kyler and I have some uh, follow-up discussion and things we want to unpack that we're going to get to right after a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. New episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the usual podcast platforms. Be sure to subscribe to us there and uh, also check us out on social media as well if you haven't already. You can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter and um, TikTok, Instagram. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting a platform somewhere in there, Kyler, but you can find us on social media. You just go look for Third Stage and or Eric Kimberling. You'll, you'll find us there. How about that? <laughs> There you go. Beautiful. We post lots of good stuff there uh, every day. So if you follow us, you'll you'll get those updates uh, throughout the day and throughout the week. So uh, we just had Wayne Kavanaugh on uh, talking about Ninja Nation, but also talking about his experience as a private equity investor and some of the things that it takes to scale a smaller, mid-sized company. So what, what were some of your observations or thoughts after hearing Wayne talk and some of the questions we had there? Yeah, what a great interview. Um I would first like to say that that's the most genius business model ninja I've seen. We have a ninja studio. I don't even know if that's what they, they call it, but something similar near us. And I have a two and a half year old and I've called them multiple times, begging them to like take him for some of their classes. Cause he, you know, he, he like, you know, it's in gymnastics and kind of needs the next level there. So we'll be calling Wayne um, for some. <laughs> will be customers. Um, but I, I think that, you know, in starting with his private equity background, understanding what that looks like to secure funding and all of those, those different types of things. I don't know about you, Eric, but I can't think of uh, better backgrounds to kind of start as an entrepreneur um, in just understanding how to structure businesses. Um, and so I, I wondered kind of what you thought as far as, you know, obviously third stage has tons of private equity um, clients and what that looks like, but just that understanding, would you say, is that a huge asset to being an entrepreneur and just understanding how to optimize business operations? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's something you constantly have to be doing. Certainly when you're starting up, up a company, the 
the focus is more on, you, you know, some of the things he talked about, like uh, not so much efficiency per se, but even though he did talk about efficiency and efficiency is important when you're starting out, but usually you're more focused on top line revenue growth. Let's just make a name for ourselves. Let's get the word out. Let's get some customers. Let's generate some revenue. And he was talking about the, um, what was it? The, uh, you know, when you enter in the, uh, the consent forms and then it goes into their system and then the, you start getting the marketing emails to all the parents who bring their kids to a party that aren't necessarily direct customers yet of Ninja Nation, but they're attending a party that someone else that's actually a customer of Ninja Nation is, is hosting. They go in, they fill out the consent form and then they start marketing to them. So was, I think that was a good um, example of what startups are thinking about. And not that you can't be thinking about that later. You should still be thinking about that later in your life cycle, but that's probably a higher priority early on is to just get the business, get new customers. And he, he found an innovative and creative way to take something that he legally has to do, which is to get these consent forms or waivers signed by the parents uh, that are bringing their kids to Ninja Nation. But then he's marketing to the, those parents that are bringing the kids to the party. So I think that's a brilliant use of technology and operational improvement, something that's not necessarily in the, the startup playbook, but he, he sort of figured out or cracked the code on how to how to spread the spread the word through through the indirect uh, customers as well. Yeah, and, and we talk about that here at Third Stage a lot. It's just that automation, and I think as a startup or a business owner, having those processes that you that just happens that you don't need to actively be a part of, or more importantly, allocate resources or funds to manage, is so important. Um, this conversation is actually really interesting for me because I am a franchisee. I own a franchise. Um, so in, I thought it was super interesting to listen to him about what that looks like in setting the foundation for, um, for the actual franchise process through systems. Because I know in my experience, that can be one of the biggest bottlenecks because you're like, oh, I have to use this certain system and I have to use this certain process. And instead of creating that um, as almost a pain point for franchisees. He made that a part of the overall value of, you know, investing in that business. So have you, have you seen that before in, in areas in which, or is it one of those things that you wish maybe entrepreneurs or small business owners or even large businesses focused on the system piece before they kind of expanded into the franchise? Because I imagine you must work with clients that have different locations and everything's kind of all over the place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You ask that question because, uh, I have a book. I was looking at my bookshelf here. There's a, uh, a book that I don't, I'm not locating right now, nor am I going to spend uh, the next five minutes looking for it, but there's a book called the E-Myth. Uh, I think it's called E-Myth Revisited or E-Myth Remastered. And it's a book about, um, how, to truly scale a small business, you need to think about your systems and your processes and your people from a, a franchising perspective. You have to think about it from the perspective of if I'm going to grow, even if I'm not going to add new locations, even if I'm just going to grow from one person or five people up to 50 or hundred people, I have to think of my business as more of a playbook. I've got the, I've got the blueprint. I've got the playbook that I'm going to use. I'm going to train people on it. We're going to have a consistent way of operating. And that's the way you truly scale without losing, um, that secret sauce of whatever your whatever made you successful in the first place. So in his case, it was the, you know, the birthday parties and the unique customer experience. And he's found a way to replicate that at multiple locations. So he doesn't have to be there doing it 
for everyone. He can train his franchisees on it and all that stuff. So, but I think to answer your question, even someone that's not in franchising should be thinking like a franchiser because you can build the same sorts of processes and systems and uh, human organizational change uh, people sides of things to scale your company faster. And you're just going to, you're going to scale a lot faster if you have that stuff figured out than if you're just trying to patch together broken processes and uh, things that may or may not work. Yeah, I, I think that that's such an interesting way to to look at it. And and I wonder, when it comes to franchisees, is there any sort of specific ERP vendors or systems that come to mind that kind of specialize in that space that you've seen be really successful? With franchisers in particular? Yes, yes. Um, no, not really. I mean, I think that's more... Uh, industry and business model driven. So, you know, certain industries or certain business models uh, are going to have different needs that lead you to different uh, sorts of ERP systems. One thing I'd say, though, that um, I actually thought of uh, earlier in the segment as you were asking an unrelated question was, um, and it relates back to this about ERP and how you fit it in, is, is back to that example I was giving that he gave or that I was referring to that he talked about where he was marketing to the to the parents that filled out the consent forms. That's a great example of how if you sit back and just say, well, I'm just going to put in an ERP system and that's going to sort of give me the best practices for how to grow a company. I can assure you that any ERP system you might have put in or he might have put in to his company would not have given him that answer or led him to that conclusion that he should be gathering information in the consent forms and then marketing to them. That's That's a process and a a unique little nuance of his business model that he defined, that he created. And now he figured out how to use technology to automate that. So I think that's just one micro example of how if you're growing a company or even if you're an established company, you can't just defer to the ERP system and assume that the ERP system is going to tell you how to run your business, especially when it comes to your secret sauce and those things that make you really successful. Uh, maybe with accounting or invoicing or purchasing some of those more vanilla commodity based processes, you might be able to do that. But when it comes to like the nuances of your business model and your secret sauce, you, you, you don't want to do that. So that's not at all what you just asked me, but it led me back to that. But important, that point earlier. but important. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I, I do. We always talk about the importance of a clear and aligned strategy um, before, you know, you let you bring the tech your overall business process. So I think that's definitely a great point um, to showcase. Um, and then, so Wayne started his business in a very interesting time, right? Yeah, right during a pandemic or right shortly before a pandemic. He really kind of took the approach of, of taking times to focus on his people. And I think that change management mindset of getting your team through that and I wondered if you would kind of talk about what that looks like for change management in times of uncertainty and kind of utilize that example of how you took care of his people. Um, and that then made the business more profitable um, and his over, overall ROI, excuse me, greater. Yeah, it, you know, it is an interesting point because it's a hard thing to measure and it's a hard thing to pinpoint, you know, the people's side of things, especially it was interesting hearing him say that because as a, you know, I, I tend to stereotype sometimes with, with private equity types and think that they're all about the dollars and cents and the things that you can see and touch and feel on a, on a balance sheet or a P&L statement. But he has that knowledge or it seems to understand that there is an ROI to 
um, the human side, even if you can't directly measure it all the time or easily. Um, so I think, you know, that you creating that culture, that environment where people like to be there. Um, he talked a bit about how they'll hire younger kids, you know, in high school or college or whatever. And the going in assumption is they're probably going to move on to their, whatever they do later in life. They're probably doing this job as sort of an interim shorter term sort of a, a job and, and they sort of embrace that and say, well, let's make them better and better equipped for their careers in the future. And I think that's a totally different mindset than if you just are hiring someone that you only, you know, is only going to be around for six or 12 months or 18 months or whatever it is. And you treat them differently because they're only going to be there for six or 12 or 18 months. They just fully embrace it and say, yep, they're probably not going to be here long, but let's make them as successful as we can in this job and hopefully in their future job. So it's, it's a really interesting I thought that was super interesting because I'd never heard an entrepreneur or a business person talk about people in that regard, especially in the services industry where attrition is so high and turnover is so high. So I thought that was super interesting. But to your to your question, though, I'm getting do, doing a really good job of totally evading all of your questions here today, um, or at least I think I'm doing a good job of it. Um, but it, but back to your question about the the change piece of it, I think that's that's really important for a lot of organizations to think about because there's so much change happening in the world with not just the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, you had uh, technology change and organizational changes and, um, you know, business models changing, industries getting disrupted all the time. And now certainly sort of the, not that the dust is completely settling yet from the pandemic, but it, it is totally shifted or changed the way the, the world looks and the economy works. And so you have a lot of businesses that are struggling. You have a lot of businesses that are uh, actually benefiting from COVID and growing even faster than they were before. You have businesses that have new regulatory hurdles. You have a lot of M&A activity now, a lot of mergers and acquisitions happening with, you know, the sort of the economic fallout from the pandemic. So a lot of change happening. So you have to think about the people in many ways. So that's the, the key thing is to, um, is to, to keep that in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of goes back to, our initial conversation about Odoo and, and thinking through kind of a, a people or team first approach when you are implementing a new technology or going through uh, any sort of disruption within your industry or, or the overall social climate. So I think Wayne, you know, gave a, a real kind of level headed and mindful answer to that um, when it came to that. And I was surprised to hear it too, because usually you know, especially the, the financial guys aren't, aren't always too concerned with um, the overall culture of the business. But it sounds like, you know, he, he has some great assets um, to offer that conversation as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember thinking, uh, you know, hearing him talk, you know, in personal gatherings and whatnot, hearing him talk about his business, I would ask him, you know, how are you doing and how is this affecting your business? And I remember thinking, man, that's, you know, is, is he going to make it? Is that company going to survive? through the pandemic, but they, you know, they found a way to quickly pivot. It sounds like, you know, sort of like what we experienced at third stage. I mean, we had that sort of four to eight weeks, I want to say it was where it was almost you know, for me anyway, I was completely panicked. I thought, Oh, wow, this is not going to be good for us. And, you know, you get to the other side, you learn to pivot. We, we, you know, invested in digital, uh, turns out a lot of businesses needed more help after the pandemic. So our business actually has doubled more than doubled since the pandemic started. So, we've been fortunate in that way. And, and it sounds like he was too, but I, I would not have guessed that his business would have thrived the way it has. And now it's, you know, doing better than ever with all the franchising. And he has a lot of investors that want to buy franchises and he's sort of vetting them out as, as he goes. So I think that's, 
a testament to, you know, what a good business model will do, what a solid business model will do, your focus on people, your focus on systems and processes, you get that recipe right. And suddenly, you know, you've got people beating at your door wanting to be a part of it, you know, either as investors or franchisees, or, you know, they want to join your team, or they might want to buy your company or whatever the case may be, or customers just want to buy your product or service. So the more you invest in all that stuff, including the, the people side, um, just the more value you're creating as a business and the more successful you're going to be. So I think it's uh, there's absolutely an ROI to it to get back to your previous question. Yeah, definitely. And we, and you, we take that same approach that he mentioned of kind of letting the customer run your marketing strategy um, and how that they want to experience the business. And of course you have overall KPIs that you monitor and, and want to see growth and progress, but at the same time, that listening component, not only within communicating your business strategy, but also within your internal culture that we talk about so much was something that he had mentioned as a, a main piece of his customer facing um, process too. So I thought that was, you know, a great point and, and really listening to his community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he also talked about um, speaking of listening to the community and to the customers. I mean, he talked about that whole, you know, I don't know if you use the exact words, but uh, customer experience, you know, sort of what does this look like to the customer and that outside in look to the way he built the company versus a lot of organizations we work with tend to be more inwardly focused. They're focused on themselves and how they can make their jobs easier and all that good stuff. That's important, but it doesn't really matter if you fix all that, if you're not really improving the customer experience or somehow making your product or service more desirable or you're delivering it more effectively with new technology or, or processes or in people improvements. So I thought that was an interesting nuance too, is really taking that, not getting too inwardly focused, but also looking at your customer and your external stakeholders to figure out, you know, how you can make the business better. Sure. Sure. I think that makes um, a lot of sense. And I think this is a great interview for anyone that is thinking about starting up a business or optimizing a small business and, and wrapping in the systems piece as really kind of the forward facing strategy to being able to scale and making sure those processes are really tightened up, aligned and efficient. So I know I learned a lot from Wayne. That was a great, great to have him on. And I think even if you're a larger, more mature organization, you could argue that you could, sure. you could learn even more from it because there's so much you could do right. differently to be more entrepreneurial, more nimble, more agile, you know, all those buzzwords that are big today, you can learn a lot from the small and mid-sized companies like, like Ninja Nation. So absolutely good to have him on. Well, that was a good, uh, good discussion. Thanks for your time today. And, uh, thank you to the audience for listening today. Thanks for, thanks to Wayne for being here today. I really appreciate his, uh, his joining the show uh, today. So, uh, again, you can find us with new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the podcast platforms, follow us on social media, check out the links below. We've got a lot of resources that we link to, uh, on our website, uh, videos, downloads, all that good stuff. So be sure to check that stuff out as well. And uh, in the meantime, have a great rest of your week, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week. We'll see you all soon. Take care.